When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Thelman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. A swamp. A swamp is a noun. It's an area of low-lying, uncultivated ground where water collects, also known as a bog or a marsh. The <laughs> reason I'm reading you this definition is that it's kind of been a while since we've taken a more detailed look at a specific wild habitat to get some insights into how it formed, what its influences are, and how we can use this information to create aquariums which seek to replicate their form and function. So today, let's return to the swamps. Well, not just any old swamps. Let's check out the peat swamps of Borneo. The island of Borneo is well known as one of the most biodiverse ecosystems on Earth. And the peat swamp forests there cover around 12% of the land, and all of Southeast Asia for that matter. Peat swamp forests are a form of tropical forests in which very saturated soils, called histosoils by geologists, inhibit the decomposition of organic materials such as leaves and other parts of trees and forest vegetation, which leads to the formation over time of peat. In areas with poor drainage, peat can accumulate over long periods of time until it rises above normal groundwater levels, which creates raised bogs known to ecologists as ombrogenous bogs, which are fed only by rain and thus have their own water table. The peat retains water via capillary action. It's very good at maintaining water. And these bogs can be as much as 60 feet, which is about 20 meters deep, and are largely deficient in nutrients because of the lack of input of mineral input. <laughs> if that makes sense, input of mineral, of mineral input. What I guess what I'm trying to say is lack of mineral input. <laughs> and the, the leaching of the organic compounds from the peat causes the water contained in these bogs to be extremely acidic, like 4.0 or lower. And these ombrogenous peat swamps can develop in areas between rivers and locales with year-round rainfall as well. They're fascinating structures, and they're home to an enormous diversity of life. And here's where it gets interesting to us as fish geeks. Studies have shown that approximately 219 species of fishes have been found in peat swamps, with approximately 80 of these species restricted to this habitat alone, and 31 of which are what, is, what are known to uh, ecologists as point-endemic species, found only in a single location. That's a lot of species in a really unique habitat, isn't it? It sure is. Interestingly, some scientists suggest that the conditions in peat swamps have favored the evolution of smaller specialized fish species, and that each area of peat swamp could support its own group of endemic species. That's pretty cool. It's interesting. It's important. Some species, and I think there's 17 right now, that have been identified from these habitats are classified as vulnerable, endangered, or critically endangered by ecologists. In fact, the environments themselves are endangered, and humankind's encroachment, exploitation, and destruction of these habitats is very dangerous. It's a very big problem for our planet's existence. Why is this? Well, think about this. During the wet season, the peat swamps are inundated with water, which slows you know, down the aerobic decomposition, which occurs in the substrate, conditions which facilitate the formations of peat. Now, during the dry season, the water levels in the swamps decrease, exposing a significant amount of this peat to the air, which leads to decomposition and the release of CO2 into the atmosphere. And this is exacerbated by human intervention, like slash-and-burn agriculture and draining the swamps and stuff like that. We all know what that means. 
And sadly, these vast swamplands are not all that well understood, and they're often underappreciated in the nations in which they're found. They're treated kind of like wastelands, which need to be you know, converted to other human important uses. And this has resulted in their rapid disappearance and an increase in fires, logging, and conversion to agricultural and industrial uses, destruction to the environment and to the planet. Now, scientists on the front line of studying ecological dangers are concerned about this because of the huge quantity of carbon that these swamplands store and the potential release into the atmosphere. It's thought that as much as 3% of the total global emissions of CO2 can come from these habitats if they're destroyed, sparking a huge amount of concern and an urgency to understand their impact as carbon stores. And there are several types of well-studied you know, peat found in these swamps, varying by composition based upon the materials found in the locales and the amount of water present in the peat. There's so much more than just peat and water in these habitats and much more to study. It's actually almost intimidating when you realize how little we know about them. These are really precious environments. They require us to understand, explore, and preserve them. And as aquarists, we can do our part by attempting to replicate these habitats in our aquariums and, ten, you know, and to breed the species that come to the hobby from these habitats. Now, not only will our work you know, help us to get a better understanding of the ecosystems themselves, it will, if we're lucky and diligent, relieve some of the pressures on these vulnerable wild populations of fishes because we're breeding them and not collecting them. Species of the genus Spheryxes, Desmopuntius, Rasbora, Beta, and Chana are well represented in these habitats. These are all genera that are very well known in the aquarium hobby. Now, interestingly, the average water depth in these swamp habitats ranges from about a half an inch to as much as three feet. Researchers have found that these peat swamp fish communities are typically more species-rich in habitats which offered higher levels of dissolved oxygen, which is interesting because we tend to think of swamp fish as being found in typically low-oxygen environments, right, and adapting to that. That being said, there are plenty of fishes which have adapted to thrive in these habitats. For example, beta hendra, one of the beta species, is known to be found in the Sebenagu forest. These are typically species that are adapted for life in the peat swamp environment with its lower dissolved oxygen levels. And according to Fishbase, it's found in, quote, peat swamps with a depth of about 5 to 50 centimeters and with no water current. The water was shaded by trees and bushes collected among the aquatic and marsh plants. Pretty straightforward there, right? Oh, another gem from my research about this dissolved oxygen level thing and its impact on fish uh, populations is something we should we should reconsider. Think about this. The quote is this. Forest pools and canals in these regions have consistently lower dissolved oxygen levels than the rivers and streams in the region do. This is probably due to the inherent nature of the aquatic habitat in peat swamp forests, where dissolved oxygen levels are kept low due to the high amount of tannins in the water from the high organic matter content of the peat, with accumulation of decaying organic matter depleting dissolved oxygen levels. Absolutely, there is n low or no water flow, especially in the pools, which further ensure low levels of dissolved oxygen, regardless of the lower surface temperatures of forest water bodies. Low concentrations of dissolved oxygen can make water uninhabitable for certain species of fish. Therefore, the forest is likely to be a more challenging environment for the fish survival. Okay, did you see the part or hear the part about the tannins keeping dissolved oxygen levels low? First time I've ever heard that correlation made and I... Believe it or not, me, Mr. Non-Scientist, I, I sort of disagree because I think what I think what they're trying to impose is something else. Although the next sentence clarified it for me because the, the researcher said it, it touched on the high level of organic matter depleting dissolved oxygen levels. So I don't think it's the, the tannin itself is what he was implying. 
My thinking is that it, the tannin is the result of the organic matter, but the organic matter itself is responsible for the lower oxygen levels. That's something that we know uh, from our experience, right? It makes perfect sense. We all know by now that too much botanical material added to the water in your aquarium is a short, you know, in a short time period can you know, result in vastly depleted oxygen levels and leaves the fishes gasping at the surface. If there's one common botanical style aquarium disaster trigger, that would be it. The addition of too much stuff too quickly in an aquarium that can't handle biologically that much input. See, that happens in nature. And what happens in nature happens in aquariums. You can push it, but you can't hide from the consequences of trying to beat nature's rules. Interestingly, our captive aquariums might function in the very same manner. The water of the peat swamps is very high in dissolved organic carbon, and it's thought by ecologists that the dissolved organic carbon is used as a substrate for microbial growth. That kind of makes sense, right? Thusly lowering the concentration of dissolved organic carbon in the water and transferring the energy from the decomposing leaves and other materials to other trophic levels. And trophic levels are basically defined as hierarchical levels in an ecosystem, which you know, comprising of, of organisms that share the same function in the food change and the same nutritional relationship to the primary sources of energy. So animals living in the same place, basically. This would explain how nutrient-poor tropical peat swamps support these diverse, abundant flora and fauna despite incredibly low nutrient levels and you know, lack of rapid leaf litter cycling, like what occurs in other types of tropical rainforests. You see that in the Amazon and other places like that. So that's kind of interesting to me. Again, something that's kind of a, a takeaway uh, and it's something that maybe correlates with what, if you recall, Johnny and Siati and I were talking about last week, about even in these aquariums with a tremendous amount of you know, decomposing leaves and material and so forth, the water parameters remain very, very good. And it makes sense with these, um, you know, these, these materials, the dissolved carbon in the water is low, but it's bound up into the materials. And so, um, you know, it's just something... Um, something to think about and something that sort of correlates what we've been playing with in the aquarium world. So with some of this information in our grasp, how can we interpret it for use in our aquarium work? I mean, now sure, I could probably devote an entire piece to how you can recreate this habitat in your aquarium from a, you know, functionally aesthetic perspective. And we will, no doubt, and we'll probably even do a video of it at some point. However, I'm not going to sell it short by just touching on it here with a laundry list of use this botanical or something like that. We've seen all seen too many of these videos on YouTube where the guy's like making an Amazon aquarium and it's like, you know, put some leaves and make the water. But we know how to do that. I'm talking about how do we really examine this in this habitat, how it functions and how do we bring that into the aquarium? Not just the look. We know how to do that. So let's just touch on one aspect of this, because, I, again, I can go on and on and I just I can be talking for hours and don't really want to. What, let's talk about what I feel is the most important, then we can cover the rest of this stuff in a future piece or a future you know, podcast or whatever. Personally, I believe that we'd be both wise and challenged to attempt to replicate the peaty soils of the swamps. I think that's the whole ballgame here. That's where all the action takes place. Personally, I, you know, I think I have, like many of you, I have mixed feelings about utilizing peat in our aquariums, and I get it. And if you notice, we don't carry peat for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is it it is hard to get responsibly sourced peat. It is available. There are some sources of it. Uh, You'll have to do your homework to find them. I I covered this conundrum a couple of years back in a piece uh, and right here in the, you know, in the tent, um, actually in the written in the blog. And you just have to search for it. Just look under the word peat. You'll find my article on that. And I think it's I think it was called something like um, 
I don't remember what it was called, but it was something about the controversy of peat. And, and I did a little research on it, and there are sources in Canada where there's actually a sustainable peat resource. So something to look at. But are, are there alternatives? Well, sure, I think so. Uh, in peat swamps, the peat layers may well be in excess of like three feet, which is about a meter deep. The floodplain forests are found along rivers, they're found along streams, coasts, and lakes. There's seasonal flooding inundating the forest for short periods leads to an influx of sediment and mineral enrichment during the high water periods. But these soils are best replicated by using non-traditional substrates, like coconut-based materials, finely crushed botanicals, mud, and various forms of sediment, maybe some fine sands. If you're thinking that we should come out with a nature-based you know, substrate inspired by this habitat, you're correct. I've already formulated a version. It took me a lot of trial and error over a number of years. And I've been testing it for a while, and I will no doubt release it uh, as a you know, limited-release substrate in the coming months. So just so you know, a little sneak peek here. <clears throat> we are going to be releasing nature-based really soon. I know I've been saying this forever, but the logistics were a little trickier than I thought. But we're also going to be having limited releases of cool inspired substrates from different types of locales so you know we may only have you know 10 pounds of something available and it just be a small batch of something just like a coffee roaster will release um regular you know new roast we got these new colombian beans in or, or these new ones from kenya or whatever we're going to be the same way we've got a new substrate that we formulated we think you're going to like it we've been playing with it boom i've already had about one two three four i've had about five or six different substrates that I've mixed up, played with, and been in various stages of experimentation, in addition to the ones that we're going to probably always have in stock. So you're going to see a, a neat rotation of different things popping up now and again. And if you want to try new systems and new substrates, you've found the right place. So that'll be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, enough of that little infomercial in there. So there are some physical characteristics of these soils which will make them challenging to recreate and to use in aquariums. For one thing, the physical characteristics of these materials will make them behave differently in water than traditional sands and other aquarium substrate. Peat in its natural state contains excessive amounts of water and it's not you know, exactly sturdy like sand or gravel because of its high permeability and it has very low what's called shear strength. And of course, it has a really low pH. So the shear strength thing, in other words, it just falls in on itself. It doesn't, it's not sturdy. You can't like uh, support like rocks or wood in it and have them sticking straight up or something. You need a hugely thick layer to do that. It's very soft. If we're trying to replicate faithfully the habitat, um, we'd want to use reverse osmosis, deionized water or water with minimal carbonate hardness. And of course, a soil with properties similar to peat, as I mentioned above. This could be, you know, challenging to manage for many hobbyists because of the resulting pH. It's not impossible, simply challenging. We need to create a biological support web that's similar to that found in nature, and that involves, guess it, our friend's bacteria. We have a product, Culture, which contains purple non-sulfur bacteria, which are extremely adaptive to low pH environments. And we believe that this will make management of these kinds of systems a bit easier than it has been for hobbyists in years past. Now, again, another infomercial, but it's something that we've played with. It's an extremophile, and it does very well. Um, another thing to consider, of course, is that the fishes which reside in this habitat are intimately linked to it. And you do really well to study the actual habitat, not just the, 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 the fishes that are found there, the water characteristics, but the forest, what the forest is comprised of, what kind of trees live in there, what kind of stuff could be expected. There are scholarly articles on this. I found them and referenced some of them in this, in this very you know, piece. There's a lot. You just have to do the homework. What we need to discuss is really how to recreate the habitat more faithfully. 
I, and again, I can go on and on about each fish species, but I think there's way better sources for that than me. There's lots of specialty organizations and forums and clubs and groups and websites. So you can look at that. I'm more interested in this environment because it's very unique. And, and again, we can represent it superficially or we can really try to dive deep into this and say, hmm, how can we mimic the function of this? I think that's a lot more fun and potentially more gratifying. It's a lot more challenging, of course. And the aesthetics may not be this sexy, you know, simple tinted tank with, you know, sand and clean plants and cryptocurrents and stuff growing out of it that you think it might be something much more different, much muddier, much more turbid, much more dark, but nonetheless engrossing. I also think the aquarium configuration would be important. I'd go with a smaller aquarium. I do that with all these little research things because until we prove the concept can work on a small scale, which I know is a little bit challenging in and of itself, I would want to start out with a large aquarium based on an, a, a concept like this because we're still trying to figure out the operating system, so to speak. So you want a tightly controlled, cohesive environment. I'd look for a shallow, wide aquarium. There's plenty of small ones like that available. And don't presume to be an a, a expert on planted aquariums either, but I do know that some species like cryptocorine and even the cephalandra and so forth are found extensively in these types of environments, and they'd be the natural and easy choice for plants in such an aquarium. Again, you can do a tremendous amount of research online. There's resources out there, both in a hobby and scientific, more importantly, on the scientific level. Um, I encourage you to read some of these scientific papers. They are a little bit more challenging for some of us to weed out the tidbits of information, but it's there. And it's a lot more interesting to hear it when you're talking about trying to replicate the habitat. It's a lot more interesting to find it out from the scientists that actually analyzed and studied this stuff than it would be from some aquarist that just said, hey, I saw a picture on, I'm trying to replicate it. At least to me it is. Um, filtration is another thing we'd have to think about in a habitat like this. It would best be accomplished with a canister filter or an external power filter or something very, very minimal. You just want minimal water movement in these swamps. Uh, minimal water movement when you're trying to replicate these swamps. Plus, with a mix of you know rather buoyant substrate materials, you'd probably want to limit the heavy flow to keep them from blowing all over your tank. That would just be shitty. <laughs> I'd plant fairly densely and intersperse a lot of botanicals to represent some of these materials that are found accumulating in these swamps. Again, I'm not going to get into specifics of what you'd use because there's tons of stuff. Now, one thing I will say is you might want to use some palm fronds. Uh, palm fronds are pretty common, and they're found in that environment because there's a lot of palm trees. So there's, there's your big tip. Palm trees, interesting. Now, the maintenance of this type of aquarium would be no different than any of the other Amazonian biotopes that we discuss so frequently here on, on the tent. Common sense, water quality management, regular water changes, and just monitoring and observation would go a long way towards maintaining a healthy environment for your little swamp. There's a lot to learn. Let's just sort of leave it there. Um, again, I can go into much more aquarium-specific ideas on the recreation of this habitat in another you know, podcast. Uh, I hope that we've not only given you a few insights into the peat swamps themselves, but more important, inspired you to do further research on them. There's so much more than the tinted low pH water to the recreation of one of these habitats, and we can dive so much deeper. It's going to require a lot of research and a lot of work to understand the unique dynamics of these ecosystems and how to recreate them functionally in our home aquariums. Let's just roll up our sleeves and get to work. So stay inspired, stay creative, stay observant, stay brave, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.